But I sat down on the couch and just let myself feel how sad I was about my body, about not being able to be who I am. And the thing started happening, right? I'm just like on the couch shaking. And Ashley came in the front door. I was, I was downstairs in the basement. Ashley's my wife. So she comes in the front door and um, I'm still there shaking. And I actually had the thought, I was like, oh my gosh, I hope she comes down and sees this because I know this isn't normal. And when she sees it, she'll be like, something is seriously wrong. And that will convince her that this is serious. And it's not that she was unwilling to be convinced. It was that I was unable to have an affect that could communicate how intensely miserable I was. And the, like the like crowning moment of the story is that as soon as she opened the basement door, my body just stopped shaking. Eden, and this is Keep the Mess, Messy Conversations with Messy People, where we have conversations about how we relate to our bodies and go down whatever rabbit holes we find. I started this podcast because I'm a bit obsessed with this topic. I struggle with embodiment myself and wanted to learn about how other people live in and out of their bodies. I figured if I'm interested in these things, chances are that others are also interested. So welcome fellow obsessives. In this episode, I speak with my friend Billy. This episode was recorded February 11, 2023. Billy and I had a lot of fun in this conversation, and I had to do a bit more of answering questions myself. Billy talks about missionary culture, purity culture, her favorite Bible stories, and how she is learning to engage with gender expectations and her emotions. There are a couple of terms and books referenced here that won't be recognized by everyone, so I want you to know that I've put that information in the show notes. I'll also say that at the time of this interview, I was experiencing some effects of acid reflux, which means I was struggling a lot with painful swallowing and pain when speaking in my lower register, which will explain a couple of the comments in here. Content warnings for talk about spiritual abuse, transphobia, queerphobia, and suicidality. And lastly, I want to remind people that just because I have someone on this podcast doesn't mean I agree with them on all matters, or even many. These episodes are not about facts or saying things perfectly. They are people's stories, their experiences, their processing. Connecting and communicating with ourselves and each other is a messy affair, so I ask for a listening ear and some grace. All right, here's my interview with Billy. Hello, thank you for doing this last minute. Hi. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm glad it, I'm glad it worked out. I had some stuff this morning, but it turned out we didn't have anything... And I have some stuff this evening, but this afternoon turned out to be good, so I was glad it worked out. Um, Should I try to do the voice? I can try to... Uh, I don't know if I can do my voice today. Do what voice? I hate it anyway. Right, so I could try to talk like this the whole time. This is about as good as my voice has gotten at this point. Oh, you can you can just be you, whatever voice you want to use. Yeah. Um, well... We can talk about voice. That might be a good conversation at some point. Yes, actually, I would love, I would love to talk about voice. We yeah, can do that, um, especially as like my voice is having mm. problems. <laughs> I think it fits. Because your feelings, yeah, no, for sure. Um, because I'm on Wednesday. I was like, but I talk in a lower register, and and when I talk higher, I feel like a a robot woman. Um, that's not good on that's two those are two bad descriptions for you I'm yeah so you know it's just kind of weird actually I, d- I never spoke there oh, but i God. like just sort of here yeah. um kind of like the 
uh, rerouting, rerouting. Yeah. So <laughs> a, little, a little bit Siri, a little, little bit, bit Siri. Siri. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, my first question is how do you and I know each other? Right. So we met uh, at the uh, Queer Christian Fellowship Conference. Um, and we, I think technically we like definitely were in like a circle where we all introduced ourselves on the first day, but really it was the beginning of day two, uh, when we both had spent some time with like a mutual, now mutual friend. I don't know if you had met her beforehand. Um, I definitely had not. Oh, for some reason I thought that you already knew each other. Uh, no, I had not met her until the night before, like the, you know, we had like that meet at gathering. And then there was like the session after that. And we sat at the same table that she did for that session, which was actually not even our choice. Like, she's great. And I was really happy to see that my other friend, the one that had lunch with us, was sitting at that table with her. Um, but yeah, I went to go sit with that table and we all just ended up at the same same one together. And, you know, that, and that was how we started hanging out. And uh, it was a good group. I was really, really happy with the, the social outcome of that conference. Yeah, yeah. So the conference we're talking about is the Queer Christian Conference, which I've mentioned before on this podcast. And this was the first one that I'd been to in person. Was it? What about you? I don't remember. Yeah, no, I, um, it's funny. I, it was a bit of a like, it was kind of a dream um, going there. And I, I in some ways, that was like, I don't think there's any way for it to live up to my expectation. I've been following that group since the like early days of when they were called the gay Christian network, yeah. but it like, it had been very from the outside. Um, and so this was the first one that I had ever like registered to and like actually been to. I'd like watched videos after conferences when they were released, like keynote speaker videos, that kind of thing. But this is the first one I had like signed up for and attended. Yeah. I, so yeah, I knew about it very a very small amount because I met the person who originally created the group. Uh, not, we didn't have a conversation, but I had met him. He came to my college and came to the gay and straight Alliance, except not really gay and straight Alliance. Cause we couldn't really have that, but that's what it was. So he came to, yep. to talk to that group, um, which I really enjoyed and then sort of fell off my radar until my therapist mentioned, oh yeah, like there's this place called the Queer Christian Network. And I realized, oh, this, this is that organization, but had changed yeah. quite a lot. And I had gone to two online conferences because of COVID. Yeah, I think they were only online, like the two years before this yes. one. Yeah, they were only online. And I'm glad that the first one was online for me because I, I'm i an introvert. Um, I love the way Hannah Gatsby calls herself. She calls herself a teacup lesbian. I'm a teacup queer. Um, and I, I prefer sort of smaller and uh, quieter groups. So... It was good for me to not be overwhelmed, but I was so thankful to go to the one in person and yeah, was for ready sure. for it. And yeah, I think we initially saw each other at the affinity group, meaning like the group for people with similar experiences. It was the trans and non-binary group. 
And the next morning, I just happened to see our mutual friend having breakfast and I was being brave. And so I sat with her and we had a great chat. And that led me eventually to, to meeting with you. And we had lunch together for the next couple of days. Yep. That was so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we went to a Greek place the first day because one of the people in our group, I believe, was Greek or like had that in her background. A calf Greek, Greek or something. And yeah. then you grew up in Turkey. And so the next day we went to a Turkish restaurant. We did. I was really excited because I, li- I live in Baltimore and they don't ha- there's there is a Turkish restaurant in Baltimore. It's very expensive and I haven't ever been there despite living here for quite a few years. But there was this little Turkish restaurant that actually my wife saw uh, the first day and they have a dish Iskender that I've not been able to get in the United States. So I haven't eaten it in, oh gosh, 10 years or something. And uh, I was really excited. I remember you were like, you have to try this. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, it's, oh, it's, I, it's one of those things where like it's, it's so associated with like positive memories in my childhood that I have no idea mm-hmm. if it's good, honestly, because it, it tastes like nostalgia. I mean, it tastes yeah. good. I really enjoy the flavor, but I, I don't know. I can't like mm-hmm. place the level of good because it, because of the nostalgia. Yeah. I, I mean, nostalgia is such a big part of flavor. It's not just the physical sensations that we experience, but the memories and the emotions connected to them, which I think is. Yeah bizarre and incredible how how our bodies work that way yeah yeah i love it i mean i know it can be it can be really difficult for people with like trauma triggers and things but um but there's this whole delight in in letting tastes and smells take you places in the past yes yeah Mm. yeah and of course i also learned that your because you grew up in Turkey as a missionary kid, and I had recently interacted with another missionary kid who grew up in Turkey, I realized that you told me that your brother was really good friends with this person's brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, actually, so I, I should correct you that uh, technically we weren't missionaries, and that's like weirdly important. Mm-hmm. Um, although I don't have any family there anymore, it probably doesn't make a difference anymore. But we knew people who would be described that way in the States that nobody describes themselves that way in Turkey because it's got such a bad connotation, right? Like they, they hear that, that word missionary and mostly they, the mind goes to the Crusades, which is not a good look if you're in, in Turkey. But we were like, we went over there as Christian expats. And I think the reason my parents agreed to go over was because they were like, it would be good to have Christians in Turkey doing Christian mm-hmm. things. Uh, but they were technically, that was always important to them. So I'm just kind of passing along. Technically, we were not missionaries. Well, I mean, <laughs> a lot of the times when you're going to countries that have either a very, very strong, dangerous response to missionaries or or just strong dislike, you don't tend to use the word missionary. It's true. Most missionaries in those countries don't use that term, but they, in America, that is the term that they would use. Right, because anything else doesn't really communicate the like. We were there to tell people about Jesus. Yeah. 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 Uh, for a second there, I thought, oh, were you like business, a business family? Because there was plenty of like business kids as well. We, we really were a blend of those two things. Like dad was, dad worked for a joint venture Turkish American company. That was the reason we first had the opportunity, the option to go over there was mm-hmm. for that. Um, and at the same time, the reason they accepted it was because they had just heard a whole thing on the 1040 window and Turkey was like the least Christianized country in some group of countries. And they were like, this is what God wants us to do. So like, 
Yeah. But yeah, the both the Christian part of it and the business part of it were pretty real in, in our life. Mm. Yeah. And we both have quite a bit of feelings about being missionary kids and the complicated, beautiful and yeah. hard and complicated relationship we have with that experience. So much, right? It's it's like it's it's all the complications of a third culture kid with religious stuff on top. And all the weight that that brings. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's and, it's and both being queer people. And beautiful. And being queer people. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Because, yeah, that, and that adds a, that gets a double complexity too, right? Like on the one hand, I mean, we were evangelical. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I, mean, I guess yes. most missionaries, yeah. I think, from the US are. And um, so it has the kind of like, I mean, in evangelicalism, right? if you're a missionary, that's hardcore, right? right? That's, that's like up there with pastors and like the elites. And on the other hand, you get separated from a lot of the like cultural developments of Christianity. Like you're kind of in Turkey, we did a form of evangelicalism that was behind what was behind what was happening in America in terms of its concerns, in terms of the conversation. So in some ways, like purity culture hit, but it hit late, Um, and it hit because. Oh my gosh, I'm about to feel guilty now. But like it hit because I traveled back to the US for this for the mm-hmm. summer and it was going strong in the youth group that I used to hang out with in South Carolina. And then I brought it back, right? Like I, I literally I was the kid that brought the like Joshua Harris, I kissed dating goodbye DVDs for our youth group to watch. Right. So like I brought I brought purity culture to like this little international community of like missionary kids in Turkey. So may a culpa. I should probably like write a bunch of people emails and apologize mm-hmm. at this point. Um so you have that intense thing, but also it is this sense of like, which it's like it's on a delay and it's not coming from everywhere at once. I mean, I, I think a lot about my parents who moved back to the States pretty recently and we're just shocked at the, how strenuous the culture war is, how extreme the culture war is now. Um, and they, they didn't recognize, like they didn't recognize the evangelicalism that they had left 30 years right. earlier. Um, and that's, that's a, that's a real dynamic too. Yeah. Yeah. I, oftentimes I think about this with like technology or things like that, but in many ways, missionary families tend to be, this is an estimate, like a 10 years behind or something. So, you know, I, I used floppy disks past the point that I'm pretty sure that they were used in America. Or or dial up past the point that it was probably used in America, you know, just all these things that I I can connect to with people who are older than me. Yeah, no, I've talked about those. We haven't talked about it, but like, this is real, like, uh, because, you know, I'm I'm, I was born in in 82. So I'm right on that, like, Gen X millennial Mm -hmm. border already. But a lot of the like, technology things that people use to be like, this represents your generation. That represents. Like I get pushed way into X on that because of where technology was in Turkey in my formative teenage years. Uh, so, yeah, no, I think it, that's yeah. real. No, it's, it's real. And because again, as you said, because the missionary world is a bit more disconnected and it's, it's the missionary world is its own culture so and missionary kids tend to grow up in that culture, not necessarily the culture that they live in the country that they live in although mm-hmm. that certainly is part of it as well it's just an amalgamation of missionary culture, yeah, third culture american groups. culture missionary culture and the culture of the country they grew up in 
Yeah, no, that's that's well said. And and missionary culture, I think that's it's so in some ways you could almost argue for fourth culture, right? Mm. Because like fourth culture being that amalgamation of what's created by those three indistinct things. Because missionary culture is weird. Even for, like if you grow up a, a missionary kid, it's not the same as if you grow up like a ba- you know, we call them base kids, like mm-hmm. military kid, right? Like that's that's its own. And I'm sure military culture is also its own thing. And maybe they, and maybe people who have that background could could talk about this in interesting mm-hmm. ways. Yes. Um, but yeah. yeah, I I was talking to a friend of mine who is a uh, military kid, and so you know I was saying talking about something, and he said, "Oh yeah, like I think that missionary kids get a it's a much worse rap." than military kids and I was like hmm you know why is that because he had moved a lot growing up you know he had he had that experience and he said well in the military at least for him we're not pretending that this is that there's a greater purpose but for missionaries there's there's God and God has made your life like this and that is a certain type of you know you're like oh well my life is miserable and I'm I'm unhappy about things which is not that's not the whole experience, but it, it's part of the experience for many missionary kids. And you're like, well, God's to blame for this. And I guess I'm just bad or God is bad or some mixture of the two. So, yeah, no, it, it is. And like, I think there's also the sense of like buy in. Like, I remember it was told to us very clearly that like, yes, God had called my parents to Turkey, but clearly that meant God had also mm. called me to Turkey, right? Like I'm also meant to be, and, it's, and in Turkey, right, there's, there's a whole thing where like, <clears throat> it's somewhere between illegal and just like really looked down on for adults to proselytize kids. I think it's illegal to proselytize kids, children, mm. minors, right? But if you're a kid, you can talk to other kids. So like, you know, you get this whole thing where like, I'm the only one that can reach people my age for Jesus. And, mm. you know, and, I wasn't a universalist back then, so I was also like, and they're going to go to hell if you don't, which is just too much to carry if you're, you know, like, I'm seven. Oh, yeah, I was yeah. nine, right? Like, I'm nine, and I cannot carry the weight of my friend's eternal soul. Like, I can't. It's too much. Yeah. Mm, I have a lot of a lot of feelings about that. Uh, I'll also say that, curiously enough, the missionary family dynamic and I don't just mean the biological family I'm talking about at least for me I called everyone aunt and uncle right I I think it's a pretty common thing and so the idea of having a missionary family and that you were not very connected to your maybe your your nuclear family but not your relatives in America is actually strangely similar to the idea of a queer family which, That's true. It does have a kind of chosen family, queer family dynamic to yeah, it. Yeah, which I find fascinating because one is not really all that tolerated, you know, within the other. But there are some things that I did really love about that community and family dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. No, because it is... Well, and, and it's in a lot of the ways that, like, evangelicalism, I'm, for the record, I'm not a big fan of evangelicalism mm-hmm. at this point, um, but the, it's a, it's in line with a lot of the ways that evangelicalism, in some ways it hurts in the end when you leave it because they are pretty good at doing community so long as you stay within their, like, little boundary of, of specifically mm-hmm. allowable beliefs and identities and such. Yeah. But it is it is warm in there. Like a church can be and often is a phenomenal support network. Like they really, really can. 
it's just that the modes they have of withdrawing that are so painful. And, and the whole thing, the whole, the whole method of removing that network is toxic. But that, but it only because the network, can, mm. that network and that family and that support can be so good. Yeah, and I think you're one of the queer, specifically queer missionary kids, and you are one of the few people who are still a Christian that I have met. Oh yeah, um, it does happen, but it's not common, and so I think it's kind of a relief for me. Yeah, I'm glad. Um, but but before we just end up talking about this forever, which I, I love and is great, um, I'm going to get yeah. to the second question, which might be related. How would you mm-hmm. introduce yourself? What is important for others to know and understand about you? Okay, so there are different, those are different answers to those, right? Because like I introduce myself, I'm just like, hey, I'm Billy. Um, and that's because I don't like selecting parts mm-hmm. of my identity and putting them forward. Um, but there are parts of my identity that I want people to know about and I want people to notice. And so I will try to work them in or I will find a way to try to disarmingly kind of be like, oh, yeah, no, totally. I'm dot, 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 dot. You know, I'm, I'm trans. Right? I'm a trans woman. I'm a lesbian. Um, I am an Anabaptist. I am uh, I'm a Mennonite Anabaptist. Oh, right. Um, I forgot. Right? Uh, I know, right? I don't have Because the... I'm going to a Mennonite church right now. So... Yeah. Oh, same both of us. That's awesome. I hope they treat you well. Uh, Mennonites are so much fun, especially like it's it's a trip grafting into a Mennonite uh, congregation. Um, they're they're fun. We, can, we should talk about that at some point. But yeah, so I'm a Mennonite. I'm an Anabaptist. Um, I'm I am a father and a wife, which is one of my favorite lines in my Twitter bio. Um, like these these things are all important to me, but they don't. I don't know. I, I never want to foreground them in my like. Hi, because I, I, it's like, I feel like anything past like kind of my name is saying, and look at this. And I would rather, I think I want to be taken as a whole. Uh, I, I want to be seen as a whole. And so, and I worry that other people will get so distracted by one part of me that they won't notice the other parts of me. Um, and I want all the parts seen. They all matter to me. I'm a teacher. That matters. Mm. Yeah, I I very much feel that that holistic nature and yet the importance of certain labels and the the sort of conflict that there can be between that. Uh I think you and I have very much shared the experience of well we be- belong in this group therefore we shouldn't belong in this other one. You can't be, you know, you can't be trans and Christian or you can't be, you can't be a missionary kid and trans, you know, like queer and like you can't be trans and a history teacher, which I think is something you've been experiencing. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So. Or even I think a public school teacher at all. Right. Like they don't they don't like that because we're in a moment where America. Well, we're in a moment where. A certain element of um, right-wing politics has decided that coming after us is the thing to do. Like coming after queer people generally, and like I would say their first target is probably queer mm-hmm. children, and especially trans children. Um, but a sec- their secondary target after that is any queer adult who interacts with um, yeah. with children. So teachers and librarians are really high on the list. I think doctors that provide 
medical services to uh, trans teens um, also get, they get a lot of hate too. So yeah, there's definitely a segment of America that just is very convinced that I cannot be both queer and a teacher. Or at least not a good teacher, right? Like they, they'll recognize that as a job I am able to perform, but. Mm. Well, yeah, I think I'll go into the, the main question, which is how do you relate to your body and how have the different experiences you've had and aspects of your life affected that relationship? I feel like, I mean, you're probably not going to have anybody on the show that doesn't have like a, it's complicated <laughs> sort of answer when it comes to our body, right? Like if we didn't, maybe we wouldn't be that interesting as guests because it's complicated. Um, I'm pro body um, as, as things go, you know, I, and I guess maybe there's a defensiveness even in saying that in especially Christian circles, right? Like those are the Christians that say we can't be queer or especially the Christians that say we can't be trans have done this really irritating thing where they label us Gnostic. Mm -hmm. um, like they try to identify everybody who is <clears throat> pro trans people and Christian as like, uh, as Gnostic. Mm -hmm. And, and then, and to do that, they, they minimize the, like they, they oversimplify the definition of Gnosticism. They get rid of the whole secret knowledge part of it, which is where the name came from. And they focus on this like idea that some of the, some, but not all of the early Gnostics were like very negative about the body and saw the body as like, it will pass away. Mm -hmm. It's not really real anyway. There's a kind of Neoplatonic element to it. Um, and therefore, it doesn't matter. Which is like, it, it's frustrating because it's the exact opposite of like every trans Christian I know who's like, my body's actually super important. Like, if it didn't matter and, I'll, and my entire relationship to it was like, it doesn't represent me and it's going to like fade away, then I would not be doing these things. Like, it would not be giving, like, I would not have this antagonistic relationship to it that mm -hmm. I do. And I have, and it is antagonistic at times, but it's also love. Like, yeah, I don't know. Something's been coming up for me a lot recently. It's just this theme that keeps popping up in my life, sometimes for me and sometimes outside of, you know, externally, is this idea of like struggle and conflict as a good thing, right? Like I'm, I'm listening through um, a Bible right now, the, the Robert Alter translation. And oh, yeah. um, oh, I love that. I love that one. The Hebrew Bible. <clears throat> yeah, I'm really enjoying it. I had the physical copy. I finally went and got the audio book for it too. But I just got, I'm going through Genesis, so I just got to the part where um, Jacob wrestles with God. Mm -hmm. And the idea that you can wrestle with that which is good, that which you love, um, and try to find, because somehow the, the, the love drive, like, I love my body. I love being a body. I love being an embodied person. Like, I, I love that that's part of who I am. And also for that, I'm going to wrestle with my body to get my body to match, to, to better represent, to better to suit, to better to be me mm -hmm. so my body is me my relationship to my body is that my body is me my body is a part of me that is still under construction all of our bodies are always changing we, we live in fluid bodies uh, we are fluid bodies so my body is fluid and i am taking a greater degree of ownership now over the ways in which my body is fluid and the direction in which my body is growing and that has been a joy and it's been a source of like freedom and health for me. Yeah. You know, one of the first words out of your mouth was about Gnosticism. And it was fascinating because in my head I was thinking about Gnosticism and how I have interacted with trans folk who that is more of the direction that they're going in. And, and I do find it concerning. Yeah. But it is not. It is certainly not all 
trans folk. I don't think no. it is most trans folk. There is a, I think it, as I'm thinking about it right now, I think it's something that's easy to maybe start out in because you have such a frustration with the body, with your body that yeah, I'll just say for me, like with dissociation, there are certainly mm. many times that I'm like, well, fuck this. Like, I'm not interested. Yeah. But I don't think it's where most of us end. Yeah. Yeah. Can I? Yeah. So mm-hmm. if I can respond on that one, like, because you're right, like totally. Right? I mean, I remember dissociation is so huge. And I'm, I'm definitely one of those people that like I was dissociating a lot. And and now I'm in a chagrined way coming back to like, be like, oh, that was dissociation with the help of a great therapist. Mm-hmm. She's tremendous. Um, because like the way I experienced it was that from the time my egg cracked, right? I realized I was trans. I had a four year gap between that and when I came out and, um, or three and a half. And during that time, that was when dysphoria became really bad. I had before that already established like rituals and habits that allowed me to stop experiencing my body for periods of time. And so those just picked up as the dysphoria got worse my response would become more intense. Like my, my, my felt need, and I think actually real need, honestly, to stop experiencing my body for periods of time got stronger and stronger and stronger. And I would, right? Like, so for me, the sinister, I don't know, insidious part of it um, was that they were pretty healthy ways of doing that. Um, and I say that's insidious because it's harder to recognize that you're doing something mentally unhealthy when you're using a generally healthy mechanism mm-hmm. to cope. Uh, to dissociate, right? So audiobooks and podcasts were, were really, really big for me. Like any, I've always been a huge reader, like a voracious reader. And, you know, looking back, I've probably always used that as a way to escape from my experience, right? Like I'm a big, I'm a, I'm a fantasy, I'm a sci-fi and fantasy nerd. And um, I've been, you know, I've been drawn to like female protagonist fiction from the beginning. And it makes sense, right? Like I, I experience myself as the protagonist and therefore I not only don't have to experience myself in this body, but I can experience myself in a body that feels a lot more right and in a social context, in a life, a, a way of living a, that feels more right as well. So that, that was huge. And yet, at the same time, when I could be in my body, I've always, I mean, not always, there have been, there have been problems, right? but I have often appreciated it, right? I'm also, I'm a hedonist, right? Like I really love physical pleasures and I, maybe in an early contrary to evangelicalism vein, like I've always thought that was a good thing, right? Um, I'm a giant C.S. Lewis nerd and fan. And for all that he has some things he gets very wrong, he's actually really good on the body. Like he's really good on the pleasures or something that are good, like God made us with, with bodies that can feel pleasure because that's just awesome because God thought it was neat for us to be able to have a source of pleasure in, in our bodies. And I mean, I've held, I've held that since probably before I was a teenager. Um, so in some ways it was pleasures would ground me in my body. And so I had this tension going on and this is all in the, the before times before I started to transition. Um, but I, my, my pleasures, especially around food, uh, but also just around like, you know, uh, just just touch, hugs, and and you know, 
would ground me in my body in ways that I could appreciate. Um, and that was not universally, but often a good thing that would sort of countervail. I'm not sure that's a word, but it's sort of countervening force to the dissociation that would pull me out of it when it got too painful. Um, when the misery of I am like this and my, my, my physicality is, is just this overwhelmingly masculine thing that I can't, I can't abide. Um, I can't stand it. And so these both things, both of these things would be going. And then since transition started even, it's a lot easier. I think that's what brings me to this like struggling with my body thing, right? Like since transition, my body is not, not today, my body's not what I want. It's a lot closer though. And it feels like it's a possibility, right? Like I can, gr it feels like growth now rather than deterioration. I don't experience myself as going further and further and further physically from who I am holistically. Instead, I am getting closer physically to who I am holistically. Yeah, I, I have been wrestling with the idea of since I've been in therapy, it's weird. I have been, you know, recognizing that I'm a trans man and going towards um, more masculine parts of who I am. And yet it's odd because I'm also more accepting of certain feminine parts of me than, than possibly I've ever been. And mm -hmm. I, I think I, I have a very good therapist who wasn't following a certain script of what it meant to be trans. And I think also just seeing parts of who I am that maybe I want to avoid. And it it is this sort of bizarre experience of like, how do I accept my body for what it is and for, and, you know, accept me for who I am while also going towards change. And I think this is actually outside of transness. This is a big thing of how do you accept the fact that you have problems or like that, you know, accept that you are a wonderful and lovely human being and yet also seek to grow and change and improve. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I want to, I want to, I want to hear your thoughts on that one. And I have thoughts on it too. But I love that. That's, I think that's, <clears throat> that tension is real. And, but yeah, I think, I think it is, who I am is grounded in change, right? Like for me, a huge moment, uh, and this came a while ago, came when I stopped thinking of myself as a, a, a changing point in time. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I started thinking of myself as a whole story told mm -hmm. over time, right? So like, I am who I have always been and I'm growing into. And so when I change my body, right? So I'm on estrogen, right? And that's been making some really lovely changes. And uh, as those changes happen, that's changing who I'm growing into if I hadn't done that. But every choice I've ever made has in some way changed who I'm growing into, right? Every, every change, every action cuts off certain possibilities and creates new possibilities, creates new new forks in the, the web of who we could become. Mm. Um, and I'm just choosing certain directions to shape my body in certain ways. And and I think they're good. I think, in fact, I will argue that it is, 
uh, it's a form of sanctification, right? The, to, to be sanctified in Christian parlance is to, be, is to become who God has made us to become. Mm-hmm. And so, and we are our bodies as much as we are our souls. And so I am making my body into who God sees my body, like into a full reflection of who I am and who God has made me to be. And that's a story. That's not a single point. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking of, you know, the idea that we are created in the image of God, and yet that image is a changing one. Mm-hmm. We are not the same as we were when we were babies. Right. And and also, you know, what, what does image mean? Does it mean physicality? Does it mean, you know, I think it probably means all of the above, right? Physicality and mm-hmm. personality and actions and, and whatever. And I think you have to be able to fuck with time some, <laughs> right, to, to make it work, right? Because you have that moment. Like, it's funny when, I mean, because people will try to reduce it. They'll be like, it's just physicality. But God didn't have a body at the time when we first get the like, and in the image of God created he them, right? That's like, the incarnation was still in the future. So God is only physical as the descendant of the people that were being created in the image of God. But you got to be able to fuck with time. So, otherwise you can't have image of God mean anything physical at all. Like, in fact, that pushes towards that Gnosticism, right? Um, Yeah. So, something, I really love finding parts of the Old Testament where God at least sounds like they have physicality. And one of them is, and God walked among Mm -hmm. them in Genesis. There's this idea of this very personal and um, perhaps physical interaction that God has with Adam and Eve and the animals and creation. And then, uh, again, there's all these mentions of God's face through the Old Testament. And again, like this could just be people who are trying to figure out a way of talking about God. But I think I am fascinated by by God's physical sort of markers that are mentioned. And I think it is complicated. And I think, right, because the idea that Jesus didn't suddenly start then, Jesus always was, you know, what does that mean? And, and fucking with time, right? Or yeah. God or angels coming in a physical form to interact with people. Or as you were saying earlier, Jacob wrestling with, was it an angel? Was it God? Was it some, what was it? And I think I, that is one of my favorite stories because it's God, some spiritual being in a physical form, wrestling, losing, and then cheating. <laughs> so yeah. for those who may not know the story, the story of Jacob, he is sleeping and then this angel or God comes and they wrestle for some unknown reason. They start wrestling and the God angel figure, I think realizes that mourning is coming or like something else. And so damages Jacob's hip or, or tendon or like something in there, which I just love that. It's like, Oh, like, no, like this is going on for too long or maybe I'm not doing well and then breaks it. And, and then names Jacob. Jacob demands a name and yeah. and the the being gives him a name and then fucks off and <laughs> leaves. 
yeah, it's, I think it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's one of those weird stories that just pops up. And, like, on the one hand, it's indelible, right? Like, Jacob's name comes from this story. And on the other hand... Israel. Like, it blows up, right? It's Israel from there on out. Like that's the, the people of Israel are the people who wrestle with God. It's brilliant. But he sh- it shows up. He's, like, on the way to meet his brother after, like, having done him wrong and then getting rich somewhere far away after running away from his brother. And now he's going back. And he's really worried that his brother's going to kill him for, like, all the stuff he did. Like, for being a scoundrel, which is who he is. Yeah. Like 20 years in the past, though, at this point. And uh, so, like, you thought there's pretty high tension around, like, is, is he going to get, you know, what's happening between these two brothers? And then there's just this, oh, and then he, like, he sent everybody ahead and then he wrestled with God and God gave him a limp mm. and a name. Yeah, it's, to me, it's, it is both, it's deeply physical, right? He ends up with a limp. This is not a, this is not a, this is not a vision that you can just have and know. He, this is, this, this profoundly changes his body. And what he does is wrestling. I think at one point God says, let me go. Um, like he's like, got God pinned. And he says, not until you bless me. And then and he gets his hip <laughs> thrown out of joy. And um, <clears throat> it's, just, it's profoundly physical. And then he goes on and like and is reconciled to his brother with a new name. Right? Like it's, it's, it's just this weird little passage. But I think, yeah, it's deeply, like the whole, I don't know. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm big into wrestling with God anyway. I am very, very, like I, you know, one of my favorite books is i love job i'm one of those people that loves job job and and that story those are my favorites right right like and what i love with the job i want to hear what you love by the way i really want to hear what you love so what i love about job is that it makes no sense whatsoever and it ends with yeah we have no idea but we get some things that shine through right so like job's three friends are all completely dead wrong about why he's suffering. And God shows up and is like, yeah, you were wrong. Shut up. At the end of the story. And I love that aspect of it. And then, and God's like, yeah, um, I'm really powerful. And Job's like, yes, but that didn't seem just. And then God's like, you know, what I'm really irritated about with your friends about is that they didn't speak rightly about me the way you did. And the last thing Job had said was like, I feel like you're unjust. And then it said like, wow, you are powerful. Sorry about that. And then Job gets a bunch of stuff. And it is, again, it's deeply physical. His suffering is physical. His, like, he's got, you know, he's, all kinds of things are happening to him. It is his world, it's his material circumstances, ultimately residing in his body, but beginning with his material circumstances, with his wealth and his family that get taken away from him. Right, but for God to then, essentially, the only thing I can find God fully blessing in that story is that Job yeah. argued with him. And argued with him without saying, like, God, you're evil. It was just, this doesn't make sense, and I feel like you owe me an explanation for this. And he's never given the explanation. Like, he never gets the explanation. But God really seems to love being told, being, like, argued with. And I think it has, it's because we're treating God like an actual person. Like, you can't relate to somebody if you can't sometimes say, this is bullshit. I do not understand why this could be happening. And I think God just really freaking loves that. Yeah. You know, I think... This makes sense of why I love both of these stories so much. So yeah, I love Job. I, on the outside of my study door over here, I have a part of Job that is printed out. Job is a pretty complicated story. You could be like, why God did you allow Job to suffer to win a bet or something? I don't know. It's kind of, it's kind of like that. 
and that's never, you know, that's never explained. And Job, his wife and, you know, I don't know if he had multiple, but his wife and children died. And in the end, he gets a wife and children, but those are not the same wife and children, right? So it's, it's, it's sort of rough, but I love what I love the behemoth and the Mm. Leviathan. Leviathan? Yeah. And I'm probably going to just put that, like a part of that in the notes for this episode because I think it's beautiful. Mm. But, you know, God has judged his friends and then Job is like, what gives? And, And God says, you know, I am great and... And like, have you done these things? These like, have you had to deal with the behemoth and like all of the ways that the behemoth is awesome and wild? And what about the Leviathan? Have you have you been able to capture or like? And I think also the way that he that God talks about the Leviathan, this sea monster, is also with delight. There's yeah. you know, violent, wild, untamable creature that. God delights in, uh, and also can keep under wraps. Um, and I love it so much, I think, because it's beautiful language. It's awe-inspiring. It has this strength to it. And again, it is God actually talking to Job, not giving Job the answer that he wants, Yeah, but talking to him. He doesn't have to do that. Right. And I... I love that. And I think for me, I am always feeling that sense of wrestling with God and being frustrated or inspired. And, you know, I think now I'm I'm having to learn a lot more about like, what would it mean to have peace with God? And I don't, I have a hard time with that. So, but I, I think both are important. So yeah, I I love that. It is deeply physical. It is. And it's right. Like we don't, I don't know. I feel like, and I'm, I'm going to dog on evangelicalism again, but whatever. Um, I, I feel like we get told this story that we have to have a, we have to relate to God as though, as an unrelatable being. Like we have to relate to God as though God can't actually be related to. We just have to accept. We just have to trust. We just have to have faith. We don't ask these questions. But that's so profoundly different from the way that everybody, that God seems really amped about in the Bible interacts with God, right? Like, again, I, we relate well to people that we can fully interact with. I remember one of my favorite friends in college was this guy that we just disagreed about everything, but we really loved each other, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and we knew that about ourselves. We would argue all the time about deep and profound things that we cared about, right? This is not like silly stuff. But when it's in that disagreement is a, is a place, it's not the only place, right? Like there are other other places to find intimacy, but it's in these, these deep disagreements that are also cradled in a place of love for one another Mm. that we get, we most profoundly, or we very profoundly experience one another, right? Like that's where we run up against each other. We butt up against each other when we are wrestling, when we are disagreeing, right? And I think in ways that are similar to, but not identical with, the kind of intimacy of when we make love with somebody else, right? Like if we, you know, when you have sex with somebody, you experience them in a way that is just deeply intimate. 
when you wrestle, when you fight with somebody in the context of I'm doing this because our relationship matters and I'm not going to let go of our relationship. I just need to know this. We have to hammer this out. Mm-hmm. You butt up against them. Like you, there's a part of you that touches them in ways, touches a part of them that you just don't normally have access to in other contexts. And I find it like deeply compelling. I'm, I, I'm an Enneagram eight. So like, I'm also, you know, I'm biased for, towards the kind of intimacy that can come from conflict. Um, but I don't think they need to be taken as, I, I just think it's there. Um, and there's a million terrible ways I'm sure that could be taken and nobody should ever use that to justify like abuse or horrible stuff. Mm. But, not even but, like, and there is a healthy and I think really beautiful and profound physical experience of somebody that comes mm. from either, you know, physically wrestling with them, sure, but mentally wrestling with them from having these like entering into a space of loving conflict with them. Mm. I think it's just beautiful. Yeah. I've been, obviously this doesn't have to just be a male or masculine thing. Mm. um, But for me, as I engage with masculinity, my own masculinity and, and the fact that I, I, people who are raised to be women are raised to be very deferential. Yeah. And I'll say that's been incredibly helpful for me. Mm -hmm. It's, it's made it so that I am good at talking with people and listening and people find me non-threatening. So I was good at doing mental health work because of this. I uh, respect that. However, I'm beginning to wrestle with or engage with the idea of in what ways can aggression be helpful or good? And and by that, I don't mean, and this is bizarre to me, by the way, like it was yeah. literally yesterday yeah. talking about this. And I just, my therapist was mentioning it and I just looked at my therapist <laughs> with this confusion. And yet there there must be ways of doing this where we're not harming each other where we are not just in a pissing match or trying to control having a power struggle, you know, yeah. all of that. I think what you were talking about is this idea of having aggression in a way that is building something instead of destroying something. So much, yes. I want to hear I want to hear you talk about this more because I think we're going in kind of these opposite directions. Like I think I had a lot of that. Obviously, you know, obviously we are. Like you're right. a trans guy, I'm a trans woman. <laughs> Because I was raised with, like, all of the, like, aggression is masculine and you need to be masculine and we're going to try to form you into that. And there's parts of that that I took, too, very readily. And then also there's ways that I was damaged by that. And I can talk about those. Mm -hmm. But I really want to hear more about, I want to hear you talk about um, aggression. Mm -hmm. And I also want to hear you talk about how you saw, um, saw it as positive to be more demure Mm -hmm. or to be trained to be more demure. Because, like, that's... I want to hear about that. All right. Uh, well, I guess I'll start with with the way I was raised. So one, I think actually both the there was certainly a different way that that the that my brother and my sister and I were raised. However, I think we were all raised to be overall non aggressive. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say that my sister is the most aggressive probably of all of us. Uh, and I, it's weird now using that in a non-negative way. 
I'm going to say assertive is the way they. Assertive. So I'll, <clears throat> I'll say I'll say assertive, um, and had the hardest time I think yeah. of all of us. So I'll I'll say that. But yeah, I I was raised, and I think some of some of who I was probably just goes more in this direction. Uh, to be, I guess, the way that I dealt with the world was was to be liked, to avoid conflict, to protect myself, um, to figure out what people liked and try to give it to them. Yeah. And of course, there are many ways that I've learned that that has not been helpful to me, to me or to, to other people in, in relationships. However, I have skills in reading people and in engaging in a way that is non-threatening. I've worked with people who have a lot of trauma and can you know have rage and things like that and because they viewed me as a woman that really worked well because they felt safe and non-threatened by me okay yeah no that makes sense and i have very mixed feelings about like oh well if i return to the mental health field as you know how is it going to work me being a man even if i and I, and i've mostly thought you know I'm always going to be a more sort of feminine man and that's okay with me. And even if I quote unquote pass, I will be one of those, you know, mental health professionals, you know, men who is viewed as non-threatening, you know? So, yeah. But anyway, yeah, I've thought about that a lot and I know that there are certain people who will feel more unsafe with me just because like if I pass as a man, right. Which I don't really see happening in the near future um but yeah uh of aggression you know i've realized more and more of like the the anger the rage the the violence that i do have within myself mostly i've viewed that with a lot of shame and i i still do and yet you know i've started doing boxing in the last year or so and that's been really helpful and again like that is you're not going out and beating people up you you are in a consenting situation where you've both decided to do this yeah for fun and you know what you're getting into and you have stuff to protect you and and all of that so yeah where where do you put aggression where do you put that and and it's been eating me up inside so it needs to go somewhere and and how do you stand up for yourself how do you stand up for others in a way that is strong aggressive but not again not harmful yeah because so no that's so good i i right i so i was raised again i'm raised a boy and there's some really good stuff that came from that um and there's some and again some stuff that went too far like i remember being taught basically like Who you are is fundamentally dangerous. Um, and that's not a fun way to experience yourself. It was not a fun way for me to experience myself, right? I don't want I don't want to be seen as dangerous, um, especially by people that I to whom I don't want to be like whom I don't want to endanger. Um, which is most mm-hmm. people. Um, but also like you are anger and your anger is a problem, but it's also a gift and you need to control it. Like so much emphasis was on control. And I did have a temper problem. I mean, it, you know, um, I had a temper problem dating back to before puberty. It got a little worse at puberty. I always say that like when I got hit with all that testosterone, it felt like somebody took anger as like one book on my bookshelf of feelings and like nudged it out a little bit. It wasn't the only option. It was just a little easier to grab that one than it was to grab other options. 
but I didn't want to be dangerous, right? So I put a lot of effort into learning a pretty extreme degree of self-control, um, which sounds really good, except it means that that was the beginning of the process that ended just before I came out and healing started with me not being able to experience any negative emotion that wasn't anger and barely able to experience positive emotions anymore, mm. right? Like, I think I went three years without belly laughing mm. um, because I didn't have access to that intensity of joy, mm. even in moments that were joyful, right? Like, I felt it, but I couldn't feel it in my body. I could not experience a fullness of, of emotions like that. And that goes all the way back to, like, that, like, you have to control it and that you can go too far with that. Mm. But I do think, like, maybe we can, maybe we need to separate, like, um, like aggression as, like, violence against other people or even, like, com competition with other people mm -hmm. from just, like, that physical or even, like, mental, but that intensity of bringing, like, your full self forward at, to the limits and then often past the limits of what you thought were your capacity to do and to mm -hmm. be, right? Like, I've done some boxing. I did it in high school. It was fun. I loved it. I really, I love... I love pushing myself to the brink of what I can do. Um, and, and, and my gosh, like a minute before you get there, even when you're not like doing these extreme workouts, right? Mm. The joy, like there is a, the physical joy in physical excellence, in being physically. Mm. And I have the similar thing with mentally. Like I love a good debate because I am having fun being as good as I can be. Right, like doing the things I can do well and just doing them. And that's that is that's beautifully joyous. Right? We we are being we're we're being very ourselves at that point. And we're not always very ourselves. We're often only a little bit ourselves. Um, but in those moments of you know, things like sports bring them out. Debate brings it out. We are bringing so much of ourselves forward and we are glorying in being who we are. And I think we should, right? Like who we are is good to come back to. We are good physically and as our, our soul, like mentally, spiritually. Mm -hmm. We are made to be good. We are being brought into a fullness of ourselves. Sanctification, the goal of being a Christian is being made ever, ever transforming more into who we are. And I think that those moments of our, you know, and I think that's why going back to the wrestling with somebody else, wrestling with God mm -hmm. is so intimate because it's both of us bringing so much of ourselves to the, to the foreground and then interacting, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's so much of me interacting with so much of you in this intense way. I, I just think it's, it's profound. It's beautiful. It's, it's a healthy form of relating. It's not the only form of relating, just like sex is a beautiful and intimate and healthy form of relating, but you don't, like, there's not a relationship if all you ever do is sex, right? Like, there needs to be other things, too. But it's a beautiful thing. So, like, I, coming into, yeah, having, having been raised with this, you know, I thought I was a boy for a long time, and I was conditioned to be a boy. I was taught to be a boy. I was told I had to be a boy. There's a lot that's good there, and there's, then there's some stuff that I have to leave behind. And there's some stuff that's good, but I want to leave it behind because it's good, but it's not good for me, right? Mm. And there's stuff that I want to bring with me now as I identify as a woman, as I am, a, you know, as I walk into my womanhood. Mm. I, there are things that, like, I can recognize, like, that any baseline feminist 101 text will tell you, like, these things are not natural to women, but are put on us, right? And I'm like, mm. well, I have this opportunity to have brought some other things. Like, it wasn't put on me. I can bring some other things in. And there's a lot of negative stuff in being a woman who was mistaken for a man for 38 years, 39 years. Um, 
So if I could bring some positive things in with that, I'm going to, right? Like you, you don't get to tell me I can't bring those, right? Like, and uh, yeah, it's really interesting hearing that. I, I appreciate hearing the opposite to that, like the, the counter, counter mm. side of that. Because I think one of those things was the like, why, why do we have to be demure? Like, I get, we don't get coded as women. Like, being diplomatic, being politic, being demure is coded as femme. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't think it has to be. I kn- I've known plenty of cis women who were very aggressive, who were very outspoken, who were very assertive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that they were also read as masculine in those moments, right? In those ways. Like, they, were, they were read as mannish. And I think that's dumb. Um, <laughs> and often had a hard time yeah. growing up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And if they did, to make it work, I would often see them push themselves into boxes, and some of those boxes would fit pretty well, and sometimes they wouldn't, right? Like, if you're, right, like, the, the ones that could also be tomboys in other aspects of their lives got away with it more than those who were honestly just pretty femme across the board, just also very assertive. Mm-hmm. I saw them get more grief for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, man, I have so many... So many questions. Oh. Can yeah. I ask a question? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so as, I know it's like since yesterday, but as you're exploring aggression, this is the question my therapist would ask me, but I, I love it when she does. Where in your body does aggression live? Mm. <laughs> I would say a lot of it lives in my chest, which I find funny because that's also where my chest is. <laughs> I think, so actually one of the questions I was going to ask you was about anger and its effect on your body. Mm. So for me, I would say anger, which is sort of, I guess it doesn't have to be, but it can be closely related to aggression. It lives in my chest and it often feels like I'm being squeezed and that it's killing me, which, you know, I think physically it can. Mm -hmm. There's... I was reading this book by Gaber Mate called When Your Body Says No, which is actually mostly about about the problem of not saying no and, and being too demure, you know, mm-hmm. and which is a fascinating book that I would recommend people read. But there is an effect that our trauma, our tension, um, emotions that are not allowed to go anywhere have on our body and yeah, for me, yeah, chest and just if I've gotten really, really angry, I've shooken, shaken. My body, I can't figure out what which form of that word I'm supposed to use, trembles. My body yeah. has trembled yeah. Yeah. because of anger that I didn't have anywhere to put it. And anger is something that I find we don't really know how to deal with anger. Like no one has like, Oh yes, this is exactly the way that you deal with this. There's some, there's some guidance out there, but it's a difficult one. And I, I grew up with a bit of anger in my home. That was, mm, it wasn't really believed that there should be anger unless it was quote unquote righteous, which now I know that anger is just anger and you just have it. And it doesn't have to be for a good reason. You just need to figure out what to do with it. And I'm not sure. Like, I don't know quite what to do with it yet. It's a, That's a growing edge for me. Um, but sure. yeah, that, that was a question I had for you. You said 
you did not belly laugh for three years and you were just consumed by anger. Yeah. How do you, how did that affect you with your body? That was bad. Um, so I, it did not get to the point that I, that I saw it have too much of an effect on my health. I think it aged me a little bit actually, but I, I didn't see a whole lot of that. What it, mm-hmm. so anger for me lives just below my chest, just kind of at the very top of my gut, right? Like sadness mm-hmm. lives further down, but anger is like right there. And also in my arms and like, I'll, I'll do like my hands will, will shake mm-hmm. and quiver mm-hmm. uh, with, with like nervous anticipation. I used to, my friends used to say that I was like a, an apostle of anger because I was used to like, I just justified it. Um, right. I would sell it people. That I didn't see the point in most negative emotions, but anger was great because anger drives you forward to fix the thing that's causing it. Like sadness just leaves you there. Anger drives you on to fix the problem. And to be fair, I was very much overselling it because at that point I was justifying to myself that like this is the only negative emotion I'll let myself feel. Mm. The only language I have for it is to say that I got like I imagine like my like like if it, if my capacity to feel sadness particularly that was the other one that like I could not do. Um, was a, like it's like a river or a pipe. Mm. It just got completely blocked up to where mm. early on in my therapy, before I had decided to come out, like I had told my therapist, um, mm-hmm. and I had also told my therapist that I was not going to come out. I had told her that like I am a trans woman. I know that. That's fine. It's true about me. It's even a good thing about me. But because of where I am in my life, it would be very counterproductive to try to come out and do anything about that. It's just a fact. I'm going to know. And. Not going to do anything with, and she was great. She did. She she did not do the like. Well, that's not going to work, right? She was just like, okay, let's let's talk about that. And they're like, so there's other problems that I'm hoping aren't related to that. She's like, let's deal. Let's see what we can do with those. Mm. But she did encourage me to sit with and like reconnect to my body and to find my sadness because I had mentioned that like one of my presenting problems when I entered therapy was that like I'm angry all the time. I said I have been angry for a year and a half, and there has been no point in the last year and a half that I was not angry. So I was like, I need to deal. I know I need to deal with that. That's not sustainable. And um, so she's like, let's sit with you. you know, find, we, we did through exercises and things of how to like actually feel your body again, how to, how to sit with these things. And I got to where like I should be crying. Like it was a very strange experience where I knew I was sad. Mm. But that did, I, I knew that I was like heartbroken, achingly sad. I should be weeping. But my body couldn't do that anymore. And especially I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it privately, but I couldn't even do it publicly. So I got to a point, there was about a month, mostly during Lent, actually, of that year, Mm. where when I was alone, I would often just start to shake everywhere. Um, I would lay down, like on the couch or on the bed, and I would just shake. Mm. Um, And I remember one day sitting there and I'm on the, I just, I think maybe just unfinished therapy and I was, you know, sort of try to feel your feelings. And so I sat down on the couch and just let myself feel how sad I was about my body, about not being able to be who I am. And the things started happening, right? I'm just like on the couch shaking and Ashley came in the front door. I was, I was downstairs in the basement. And Ashley is your wife. Ashley is my wife. Yes. So she comes in the front door and um, I'm still there shaking. And I actually had the thought. I was like, oh, my gosh. I hope she comes down and sees this because I know this isn't normal. Mm-hmm. And when she sees it, she'll be like, something is seriously wrong. And I was still, like, operating under the belief that if I was going to ever transition, I needed to justify it. Like, mm-hmm. 
we should probably maybe talk about that at some point, but mm-hmm. like, I felt it needs like to it be bad enough. It needed to be bad enough. Right. Like I've never been suicidal. So in some ways I remember there were times when I was like, this is so miserable. If I was suicidal, it would justify fixing it, but I'm still not. So that sucks, which is a very weird and warped way to think about things, but it was how it was. So I'm like laying there on the couch. I'm like shaking hoping that my wife will come down and find me that way and be concerned enough that like that, that, that will convince her mm. that this is serious. And it's not that she was unwilling to be convinced. It was that I was unable to have an affect that could communicate how intensely miserable I was. Mm-hmm. And the, like the like crowning moment of the story is that as soon as she opened the basement door, my body just stopped shaking. Like I, uh, she opened it and I just, yeah. And I could tell people, like, it, it was, there. I've talked to friends about this since then, that in that, that time period, and the, and the months leading up to it, people would ask me how I was doing, people I know and love and trust. And I would say, and I would laugh, and I'd be like, man, I am doing, I mean, honestly, pretty terrible these days. And they'd be like, well, that sucks. And they would not act as good people who know that their friend is hurting act. And I don't blame them for a moment because I would did not act like yes. a person who is suffering acts either, right? Like I, but I couldn't. This is this is the problem. Yes. I couldn't make myself do that. So that that story is the best I've got. Best explanation I've got of mm-hmm. what happens when you hold. And it's not even that I held it in. I had ways of letting my anger out, but everything was anger. It was yeah. there was no way to let all of that out. There was just it could it you couldn't do that. Yeah, I I connect so much with what you were saying about, you know, as soon as Ashley opens the door, then you you stop. And, you know, I, I my my partner has seen, you know, some of my pain now. And it's not that he never saw it, but I am pretty good at making it look like I'm doing fine. And it's often not sometimes it's conscious. Sometimes it's a conscious yeah. act, but a lot of the times it it wasn't and I could even be saying I'm having a really hard time yeah. and it wasn't I just I couldn't let the other person know how hard of a time I was actually having even though I you know so for me I was quite suicidal I ended up going to the psych hospital transness was a huge part of that it wasn't the only thing but sure you know people knew that I was suicidal I had told them you know I told my priest I had told my therapist, my therapist knew, of course, the most about it, friends of mine. And with my partner, I had told him on, on two occasions that this was a yeah. thing. But for like, there was just a way that I talked to him about it that did not set those alarm bells. Yeah. And, and some of that was the way I said it. Some of that was the way that he heard it. And so when I did end up going to the hospital, he was just overwhelmed. Because I hadn't said, oh, well, yeah, uh, I have created a plan. Like, I have a specific plan. You know, this is the way that I'm going to do this thing. He didn't know that. Yeah. Because part of me didn't want him to know that and to know that I was miserable or, or I think, to some extent, want to be stopped. Like, if I say this, then I will be able to be stopped. Yeah. And I think... Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. And it's just a lot of blank face of just, yeah. And just things that I, I'm like, Oh man, I, I 
did that. And sometimes it will feel it's better now. Like this, I show a lot more of my emotions, but for a while, I think, and still to this day, I feel that if I show strong emotions, I'm acting. There's a certain amount of performance. And I think there is some, but it's because you're like, I'm not used to actually showing this on my face. Right. Right. It's the sense of like, I have to act to actually represent the truth. Yes. Yeah. That's a weird feeling, but yeah, I, I can identify my gosh. It sounds rough. The version or the closest I experienced to it was really rough. It was a hard time. I remember mm-hmm. what, I mean, and, and going back to kind of where we started, the thing that justified even get starting therapy in my mind and with Ashley, I mean, she was never going to say, no, you don't go to therapy, right? Like she would have always mm-hmm. supported them, but I felt like I had to justify it because all kinds of stuff. What justified it to me was I had gotten into this cycle over a couple of years of like checking out more and more mm-hmm. at home where I would, and again, podcasts and audiobooks, um, or, or physical books, but at, when I was actively interacting with people, that was okay. But as soon as we stopped actively interacting, I would put in my headphones and I would, you know, I'd find some job to do. I justified as like, hey, I'm helping around the house. I'm doing the dishes. Mm. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sweeping. I'm doing whatever. I'm cleaning up. But I would be checked out and she'd be talking to me and I wouldn't even hear it because I was, you know, headphones on or whatever. And then she would talk to me and she'd say like, this is getting out of control. Like your kids were asking for you and you didn't respond to them. And like... Mm. You need to be present when you're here, not just when, when you know we're talking to you. And I'd be like, you're totally right. I'd feel terrible about it. Right. But, and, and then for like two weeks, I would be better. Yeah. But then the pain got so much. Right. And you would just, you would just, well, mm. the habits would, would wiggle their way back in. Right. You just, well, almost at the end of a chapter when you get home and so you just keep it in and you, know, you make an mm-hmm. excuse to walk the dog so you can listen to your book, um, which is not so you can listen to your book, so you can stop feeling this way. Mm. You know, I just, and by the time I recognize that, like, this is a pattern and it's not getting better, like, I can stop for a few weeks, but I, I need to be present to my family. Mm-hmm. That was what finally got me to, to even doing therapy. Yeah. So, you know, I think quite a bit of this, we've been talking about how to be present with ourselves, you know, but what you're talking about right now is how to have a body with other people people how to have a body and a presence and could you talk more about your experience of engaging physically emotionally with your family or with other people in your life yeah so you were talking about empathy and honestly engaging well with other people in my life is still a thing I'm learning or relearning Mm. um I could do it. I've always been able to do it when I knew I was doing it. Like when it was, you know, again, even in the worst of times, if somebody came up to me and like, you know, hey, I could I pull out the headphones. I'm really sorry. Focus on them. And they would leave and know that we had had a conversation. Like it wasn't, you know, Billy wasn't listening. Yeah. But the reason I could do that and, and not just succumb to the pain or the grief or the anger is because I was, again, almost a form of dissociating. Like I would be fully into their words and to responding to their thoughts. Like I was out of myself and on them. Mm. That led to me being really great at interacting with other people Mm. in that I was wholly in the situation, focusing on them. Mm. It also meant that I was not bringing all of my own real Mm. self to that conversation. Mm. And part of that is just the transness of it, right? Like those aspects of myself that have a more typically feminine affect, 
I have learned to suppress over the years, and, and unsuppressing those is still an ongoing thing that I'm learning. But another part of it was I just couldn't be present to myself. I could not listen to my body and how my body was reacting to what they were saying. Um, I, I couldn't access how I was feeling about what other people were saying to me because that was against the whole point of me being there with them. And learning to do that has been hard. Learning to do that has meant, it's meant a kind of vulnerability that mm. I am not well trained in. I don't know if, uh, if you experienced this one, in, but in evangelicalism, one of the things we used to do was pray. Mm-hmm. I still pray a lot with friends, but, um, but in the, especially in the, those purity culture days, you know, for me, the late 90s, early 2000s, we would sit around and we would share what's going on, what's burdening you, what's hard for you, what do you need help with, like, what are you struggling with, mm-hmm. what's usually like, what sinful thing are you either wanting to do or you are doing and I learned pretty early on that if you share some, like, th- there's this game where the, the trick is to find something that is slightly more vulnerable and, bar- and embarrassing than anybody else there is going to be willing to share, but that also isn't the deep, dark secret of, like, oh, I want to be a woman, um, <laughs> right? Like, then everybody thinks you're super vulnerable. Yeah. And they admire you for that. And they, but you need to just not cross the line into the thing they'll actually judge you for. There's this beautiful sweet spot that you had to find where like you come across as like super transparent and very spiritual and mature and like they they really admire it. As long as you don't say that like actually one of the things you did or one of the things you're struggling with is something that they're going to judge you for a whole lot because then it flips. Yes. And I got really good at that. But again, that means that I learned how to be present to people without being present to people. I learned how to take people seriously without taking them seriously or without being myself part of mm. that relationship. Uh, and that's a weird and, and ultimately not healthy way to have relationships. Mm. Yeah. I, nope, I got to Sorry. Yeah. yeah pause. Go for it. I got to turn something off real quick. Yeah. Um, One child has just woken up, but the other child is in theory going to play with that child, so we should be good. Just heads okay. up that that might interrupt us. Sorry about that. No, you're good. Actually, actually, I think that that leads to my next question. What has it been like to be a parent, you know, and being present with your children in this experience? You said earlier that you are a father and a wife. Yeah. 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 Kids are wonderful and and hard and I you know all the things, I don't know. There's a million podcasts I want and, and, and books about the joys and struggles of parenting, and they're all like they're all partly true and partly wrong, or whatever. Some piece of wisdom, I don't know. For me, having kids has been on the one hand a very healthy and positive thing for me, right? There's the whole aspect of it of like, mm-hmm. how am I doing as a parent? But, um, but for me, having kids has helped me because kids are just, they don't, we don't start off knowing to protect mm-hmm. ourselves. Um, they're so vulnerable. Um, and I mean that like, I don't emotionally and relationally, they're just mm-hmm. themselves. They just bring all of them all the time. And that invites the same in you, right? That invites return. So that has been good, right? Like that has always, in some ways, I could bring more of myself to my relationship with my kids um, 
than I could to most of my other relationships. And my kids aren't going to judge me for bringing more femininity to our interactions, even when back, you know, back when I was you know, pre mm. presenting as a guy. They, they weren't going to judge that. That was just how daddy is. Mm. So, so, and that, so, and, and, and you kind of internalize that, right? Like, again, um, everybody has strong opinions about Enneagram. Let's, we don't even need to go there. We can if you want to, but whatever. But one of the things I find useful in the whole, like, eight thing, or at least that rings true with me, is the whole, like, kids are easier, right? Like, the whole, it's that you have this, this defensive, aggressive posture towards most of the world, but you really enjoy mm -hmm. children, because you don't have to do that. Like, there's nothing in you that needs to protect yourself from children. Um, and that was true also with my children. Um, on the other hand, um, kids are intense. And when I got to where I could feel almost no emotions anymore, because it was all anger. And you definitely don't want to vent anger at kids. And I definitely did not want to vent my anger at my kids. It got to the point that almost anything going wrong could make me feel overwhelmed. Like I think that the the last the last time I cried before my transition, and this well, it was about a year and a half, two years or something before my transition. But the last time I cried before my transition was when one of my kids, in a fit of fury over the fact that like it was like I wouldn't let him take a particular toy to the park. I think. Right. Like we were going to the park together and he couldn't take that toy because, you know, I don't know. I don't even know why, um, but he couldn't. And he, he looked at me and he said, I hate you. Um, and I just broke down crying, which is honestly not probably the reaction you should have in front of your kids. Like it scared him. Um, we were human, you know, because I'm human. Yeah. No, I, I don't. I don't think I've ruined my kid or you know, put a dollar in the <laughs> jar and move on. You know, like it's fine. But I say it to illustrate that, like. I couldn't, I couldn't do anger. I couldn't do anything else. So you break down, right? Like you just, you do the things you do when you can't do anything. Um, or when none of your stock responses are adequate or up to the situation. Because kids are vulnerable and need to be protected. You know, like, and also you're, you're their parent, right? Like you love them. And they're uniquely weak um, or uniquely vulnerable. You can't bring... You know, anger at them. If, if a friend of mine really frustrated me, I would pick, I, I would argue with them. Maybe even it wasn't legit, right? Like, I would find something we disagreed with, bring it up, and fight with them. And we weren't fighting about the thing we were fighting about, but they didn't necessarily know that, and I was doing something vaguely cathartic in some way, right? Like, I don't know. I, I'm not saying that was healthy, but it was familiar. It was a, it was a, um, it was a pattern I knew how to follow. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have that for my kids. So that made it harder, right? Like that's, you know, parenting, that, that was the hard part of being a closeted trans person and a parent, or even just a conjuncted angry person and a parent who wants to be a good parent. Um, so yeah, the, those, the, that like strikes me as like the, the biggest benefit and the, the biggest hardship of, of parenting in this situation. My kids are amazing. I mean, I, I love my kids. I, you also do a thing where you get, I, I did a thing where I got a little bit like, um, so I have two sons and a daughter, as far as we know. And uh, they're young enough that, you know, they might tell us otherwise someday. And 
you do this vicarious thing where you try to raise your kids and like in some ways it's really good. You try to raise your kids in the ways that like to know things that you wish you had known or to have internalized things that you wish you had internalized earlier on. And in some ways that's really helpful for working things out. And on the other hand, it's not your job, kid's job to be your therapist and trying to like convince your kid that it should be them versus the world when it comes to some way that we do gender. Mm -hmm. That's not fair to a kid. Right. Um, and so you have to, and I, and I fell into that trap a couple of times. Mm -hmm. Our kids are, they're not like ridiculously gender nonconforming or anything, but they're, they're, I like to think they're freer than the rest of than we were growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, they definitely know that they would have our support in however they wanted to present or identify, mm -hmm. however they do identify. Mm -hmm. And so seeing them growing up and having all of that possibility in front of them, I think was hard. Like, it's a weird thing to be jealous of your kids, mm -hmm. right? And be like, mm, if I could do it, you could make all these choices. But it's like, you need to make your choices, not don't make my choices. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember talking to a couple of people about you know, I don't have kids currently. I would like to have children and saying, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to be resentful of my kids. And the first person said, you are, this is just <laughs> yeah. a given. And then the second person said, if you are a good parent, you will be because yeah. they, they will have things that you didn't experience. And then, you know, you will be like, Oh, you're being ungrateful or like, I wish I had that. Yeah. Or so, yeah, I think that was incredibly helpful to me in accepting that that was just going to happen, and also that it makes sense of why. So, for sure, how? Yeah, because they, they never appreciate it. <laughs> I think maybe they one day they do, but they don't. Yeah, as soon as they're like unhappy about something, you're like, you don't appreciate this enough. I was wondering, what do your kids call you? Oh, I love that question. Uh, they call me daddy right now. Um, that is, so when I came out to them, which was after I came out to my wife, but before I came out to many other people, I, my, when I came out to my wife, we agreed, uh, we talked about it and uh, agreed to, we knew we both needed support and that like this was going to be a hard time for both of us. And so like we would not be, like it was, it was a dumb idea. It would be, it would not be a good idea for us to be our only support, mm -hmm. right? Uh, in this, through that. Um, and so we were each, we each reached out to another group of people that we could talk to about this for support. And so she, she told me who all she wanted to talk to. I told her who all I wanted to talk to. And for a while we were very carefully clearing, like who can know, uh, with each other. Um, so it was like, I told her and then I told this, you know, group of support, supportive people. And then I told our kids, well, I've told two of them, one, was very young at that point. Mm -hmm. And um, the oldest took it well. And in fact, he's one of only two people that I ever came out to that were like, I thought maybe. <laughs> um, I could see everything. They do. And, well, and it was funny, the things that like had, I was like, what tipped you off? And it was it was funny, weird stuff that it never occurred to me would have tipped him off. Mm. Um, like I, I had been wearing a thumb ring and he was like, I just feel like <laughs> a thumb ring. Mm. Um, I liked that thumbnail. I lost it. Anyway, and the other one, uh, it was a little bit harder for him. Not, it was not really hard it, for him. I don't know what was going on with the oldest at that point, but the oldest was getting a lot of attention for some reason. And then the the middle one has is a middle child, and Ashley was. 
and Ashley is great with him, but like we were going through something where I think we, we were giving her a lot, she was getting a lot of attention at the time just because she was going through something. Um, and so when I, I think up until I told him, he thought that he and I were the only ones that didn't have something like weird and special going on. So I was like, mm. explained my transness and explained that like, actually, you know, I've always been a girl, but like, we didn't know that even I didn't know that, but now I'm going to be changing. Mm. And, uh, mm-hmm. he, he didn't, he's, he's not trans. He wanted to find a way to change. Like he felt left behind in mm. the sense of like that. You know, he's not getting, there's nothing, he felt for a while like there was anything special about him. Mm. Um, and that's a distraction. Now. But like, anyway, yeah, sorry, yeah. I, I just realized I kind of rabbit trail, but. Um, there's all sorts he's of great now that people can respond in different mm-hmm. ways. And with kids, you just, you hold it, right? Like you, you, you listen and you let them, you let them feel that way. And he's, they're all great now. My, the, the youngest is hilarious because she does not remember like when I had a beard, when like, she doesn't remember all that. Uh, she was like one or something, and um, but she sees pictures around the house of like our wedding day and things like that. And so she'll like come and ask me about like, when were you a boy? <laughs> and we have like yeah three year old appropriate conversations after that. But the way um, you asked me a very specific question, and I was like giving background for it, but now I don't remember the question. Oh, I guess yeah. What is it like to? Oh, daddy. Like, yeah. why do they call oh, me daddy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was, it was Okay. So when I came out to them, I said, like, you can keep calling me daddy. Um, I'm fine with that. And I can talk about why I'm fine with that. But, like, I'm fine with it. Um, but also, we can revisit that if it gets weird. Right? Like, I have a, um, as a trans man friend of mine whose daughter uh, still calls him mom. And that was really comfortable for both of them for a while. And now like they've started, they've, they've started to have to revisit that conversation around like, is this getting weird? Mm -hmm. Because he passes really well now. Right. Right. So when like, you know, when, when his daughter's like, Hey mom. And then he kind of like, that's, you know, um, and so, and I, and I told them like, we can revisit this anytime if you want to, it's it's not a closed conversation, but for right now you can totally call me daddy, which is what they had called me before. And, and I'm fine with it. I feel like, there are a number of reasons for it. Like one, I am a relatively like mask in my gender presentation and my, the way I, yeah, the way I perform my gender. Um, like it's not fully, I, I have femme days particularly, uh, but generally I lean, I lean mask. And what do you mean by that? Cause I, I don't really see it. So oh, I'm glad uh, that's, that's, that makes me happy. Although, again, I don't mind being that. Like, I mean, I'm a lesbian, right? Um, so I'm, and we come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, that's not to, like, pigeonhole all the other lesbians. But it's just I don't feel any particular need to be super gender conforming. So, um, like, some of it, we were talking about anger. Like, I, some of those, like, gendered things, I'm like, no, this is still just me. I've known trans women that need to kind of distance themselves from every aspect of the before times that felt like it was very mask masculine. And I don't feel a lot of that urge internally and as a sense of like being true to myself. There's a social expectation that does that sometimes. We can talk, we should, that, that'd be a good thing to talk about actually. But so what do I mean by that? I mean, part of it's just my style, right? Like I still, I'm pretty darn comfortable in like jeans and a t-shirt most of the time. I like wearing skirts and dresses occasionally. I would say you're kind of punk. Yeah, I, I mean, I like that. I like that look. I love that somebody would describe me that way. And I guess often punk actually gets read a little bit masculine. 
and but like you know even even when it comes like well honestly like how we do being married Ashley and I is a evolving and interesting thing like not evolving in the sense of like our relationship is in any risk but evolving in the sense of like what does it mean to have a sapphic household like you know uh, that's and we thought we had an egalitarian marriage before I transitioned and then like it has changed uh, the ways and the roles that we bring ourselves to are to running a household together mm. has changed when the burden of I have to do the husband things is somewhat off of me, mm. but also for her, the burden of like to do these, these femme coded things that won't get done if I don't do them. And she's like, Billy can do those, right? Like there's nothing. Mm. Um, I don't have good and exact language to put on it. And I kind of feel like if anything I did identify somebody would come along and be like, that is an over stereotype generalization. And I'll just own it. Like, sure. I am a hundred percent certain that, some of the ways that I performed masculinity before in the before days was based on stereotypes yeah. and generalizations. And some of the ways that I try to perform femininity now or perform masculinity now are also based on stereotypes and generalizations. We live in a messy, complicated world and we get shaped by messy, complicated forces. And some of them are good and some of them are bad. Um, but there is a um, script for fatherhood, right? Um, in a two-parent family to heterosexual two-parent family. There's a script for fatherhood. And I still use a lot of that script, I guess maybe is what I mean. Um, when I say like, why am I comfortable with dad mm. or daddy? Um, I still take more from that script in the way that I do my par I parent mm -hmm. than I think I do from motherhood. Although I've been finding that the motherhood part has been growing more. Mm. And like, there is definitely like, maybe one day we will, like maybe I'll, initiate that conversation be like hey y'all i don't know how comfortable daddy feels to me anymore do we want to have this conversation now are you or would you be willing to think about changing it i don't think i'm there yet and maybe i never will be like i never know where a process starts i don't know where it's going to end mm. for right now i'm still i'm still comfortable the only and, and i'm don't i don't pass very well for better or for worse and i have Trans people can go on for years and years about that conversation, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but I don't pass very well, which means that, like, that kid calling, you know, my, my kid running up and calling me daddy doesn't really out me. It, you maybe get a look. <laughs> but as soon as I open my mouth, like, I don't have a femme voice. And I'm working on one, and I'm not very good at it, and I'm not disciplined about it because I don't care. There are trans women who don't try because it absolutely feels fake or it's uncomfortable or mm -hmm. hard or whatever reason. I like my voice. Like this is right. Like I'm a little bit, <clears throat> a little, little husky today because get got over a cold. But getting over a cold. But I like my voice. Like I had a student the other day. It was like weirdly gender affirming, especially since I'm like I'm not non-binary. But like I had a student the other day who was who I overheard talking about me, a relatively new student, saying like she sounds like an announcer, and it made me happy. Right? I was like, one, the kid is like accurately gendering me while also commenting on a, like. A voice with characteristics that are typically associated with with masculinity. I guess I think I have a useful voice, and I like it. I, I like the way it sounds. I like singing baritone. Mm. <laughs> and also, I really hate that. In all likelihood, a significant portion of your listeners mm. are going to have a lot of trouble hearing me as a woman, because they're not only experiencing me through my voice, and my voice is wildly coded masculine 
And that I don't like. It's not that I don't like that my voice outs me. It's that I don't like that my voice causes me to perpetual, like perpetuates my being read as a man. Right. And I don't blame that on any person. I think that is a social, bigger social problem. Right. There is a part of our brain that is deeply, deeply formed to where when we hear a particular kind of voice, it just activates all of the, this is a guy associations. And that's frustrating to me. It's a fact. And again, it's not even a thing that I blame people for, but I find it frustrating. And um, because when people experience me that way, they're not experiencing me as accurately or as fully. Yeah, it is hard for me working in a medium that very specifically, you know, my, my voice, my voice sounds like a woman's voice, right? And uh, uh, Billy giving the eh, sort of you're like, eh, I don't, maybe I it's fun. We can we screw with our brains. I don't know how much I've done. it. Like your, your voice doesn't feel like a woman's voice to me. It doesn't feel like deep, right? Like, but it doesn't feel like a woman's voice to me. It just feels, it sounds like your voice and you're a man. So it feels like a man's voice to me. And I don't mean that as like a get out of jail card on that or anything like it. It's just, yeah, but I've seen you and I've interacted with you a lot, right? Like, or a fair amount, right? Yeah. Anyway, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I I mean, it's, thank you. I appreciate it. It's comforting. But you know, when I talk to people on the phone, I get ma'am. Right. I always get ma'am and I usually don't try to fix it because I'm like, this is not worth my time. I'm probably never going to talk to this person again, but it's frustrating. Right. And so I'm on a medium in this podcast and I know that I have to mention that I'm a trans man because otherwise people are going to be like, and that is a woman, you know, and that's just the way it is. And I'm may never be on testosterone and you have to be careful in how you pitch your voice as as i was saying at the beginning of all of this you know i'm having swallowing problems i'm having issues with uh speaking in my lower register i have to be kind of careful so yeah it's weird but yeah it is and it's yeah it's hard how do you can i ask how do you feel about your voice like if if they had a like testosterone, but only for the voice, mm. right? Like if you could do just that, yeah. is that a thing you would want to do? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And probably me too. Probably. Yeah. I mean, I guess some of the worries about testosterone on the voice is that your voice can crack for quite a while on testosterone. And I would worry about singing and speaking and just sounding like a boy in puberty for a while and depending on how it goes i'm not there are some cases where that seems to be where you just land and that would be worrisome um i would want a vocal coach for sure so that i can see how high and how low and i can sing and to like smooth things out like ways of of helping with that but yes no i I tend to view myself with like think of myself as having a men's voice and it is difficult for me when I listen to myself, which I've had to do a lot with this podcast. It's been helpful, I think, but I hear my mother's voice and I hear my sister's voice and 
you know, they're, they're wonderful people, but that's not the voice that I'm going for. I want a voice that is a yeah. bit more like my brother's. I've always, I don't know. I think in puberty, I thought that I would end up like my brother, even though that was not what I was being told. Right. So, um, well, I wanted to make sure to, to get to this question since you were talking so much yeah. about emotions and, you know, anger and how that's affected your body and, and having difficulty with sadness. Yeah. What, what is your experience with transitioning and specifically with hormones been on your emotions and on your, on your body? Yeah. Right. And, and this is that like, the disclaimer is that like everybody's different. Um, yes, I. There's a lot of stereotypes yeah. out there about estrogen and testosterone, and, um, but some of those are there for a reason. Yeah. No. Sure. Um, it's hard for me to know how much of my uh, evolving experience of my emotions and the way my emotions live in my body. Uh, it's hard for me to know how much of that is hormone related and how much of that is just me getting healthier mentally as a result of like being out. Um, so I, I don't know if that's a caveat, but like that's one of the, it's hard that that makes things difficult, but I can say, so let's see, I came out in April of 2020 to my wife and I started uh, estrogen and a testosterone blocker in June of that year. Mm. And then I, I did the thing where I like slowly increased the amounts to where I've been on, I've been, I've been, it's been about a year now that I've been at like cis woman levels mm. in terms of where my testosterone is, where my estrogen is. So my hormone levels were changing in the same period where I was getting, having the most of the coming out relief, mm. right? the, the, the relief of being able to just be myself. Yeah. Uh, at least in, at first in some contexts and then in more contexts and ultimately everywhere. And, and all of that, right, is concurrent with I was learning to not just feel anger. So I know that it was in the first week after I came out to Ashley that I stopped all of a sudden on a Saturday in the middle of the kitchen and said, I'm not angry. Mm. You know, that took a week. Um, I got angry again, obviously. Like, that wasn't, I've, I've been angry since then, but like mm. that was when, you know, so that was pre-hormones. Um, on the other hand, learning to gain direct, like actually gain access to my sadness has been a slower process. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think I really, really cried. I don't have an exact date, but it was, it was maybe late fall, possibly even spring mm -hmm. the year after I came out to Ashley. And I was definitely on hormones by the time I did. And, um, I think I said a thing like a while back that like back when I was, my first puberty, the boy puberty, it felt like it took anger and pushed the book of anger out a little bit, just a little bit, so it became the most easily accessible of all of my my emotions to go to. The way I experience my emotions now is just that anger is not more out than the other books. It's not more readily any more readily accessible than the others. In some ways, it's less accessible because I feel like I have built like a mental cage around it. Like I've one of the things I'm now working on is with in therapy is how to not be afraid of my anger, not because I think anger is bad. Like I cognitively, I'm I'm there, 
I, I get that it's sometimes very much the appropriate thing, but I'm afraid that I won't. I misuse it for so long that I'm afraid I'll misuse it again mm-hmm. rather than right? like fear is the other one that's very hard for me to access. Fear was actually the first negative emotion that I ever turned into anger and the one that's hardest for me not to turn into anger still. And the fight, flight, freeze, or fawn mm. quadrilemma, I'm, I go to fight. Um, is, that's is sort of my, my baseline. Or at least I did historically. Now it's, it's an option. So my, my emotions feel a lot less, they feel more intense, but that also feels welcome, right? Um, uh, because I have access. I never, I never, never understood the attraction of sad movies mm-hmm. until about a year into being out and on hormones. I didn't understand why anybody would want to feel sad. Mm-hmm. I, that was very strange to me. It was just completely opaque. Now... I want to feel sad sometimes mm. and I want to feel wistful sometimes. And I want to, you know, and I can, and that's very exciting to me. So since going on estrogen and decreasing my testosterone significantly, um, I have gained access to the other emotions. And again, that might be partly therapy, but it also might be partly other things. And I have diminished the, degree to which aggression or anger are immediately available. They're still there for sure. And I get it. Like I said, I get angry still. Mm-hmm. I find, uh, oh, and then um, progesterone makes you have like very vividly weird dream, weirdly vivid dreams. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's the only effect of that one I've noticed, except I get depressed for about a day and a half after I stop, I cycle it. So after I stop taking progesterone, I get like, there's like two or three days where I might get depressed. Not always, but I, mm-hmm. that becomes like more real Um, yeah so that's i think that's my experience is that like mimicking menstrual cycle or okay Mm -hmm. yeah some of us i mean trans women uh trans femme people i guess some of us will not don't take progesterone at all uh some of us do and will cycle it to kind of mimic that cycle Mm -hmm. and some some just take it and stay on it like just you just always take it at kind of this lowish dose Mm -hmm. And there's not really great research out there as to like what is the best for achieving certain effects or like the most health. Um, it's a safe thing to do, but like what's going to be the best outcomes in terms of like, mm. you know, some, there's some thought that it helps um, increase the effects of second puberty. But I'm like, I'm a liberal arts kind of gal, not a, uh, not a, not a STEM person. And uh, I tend to trust other people who are better at doing that kind of research than I am. Right. Um, and it just, it felt good mentally to, my goal is usually to have my hormone levels as close to those of a cis woman as I can get them to be. And for me, that meant cycling them. Yeah. Mm. Well, we are, are nearing the end, about at the end. So I, I always like to ask, as the last question, if you have anything else you want to say in general or to listeners specifically. Yeah. Oh, it's a really, it's a good question. Only I probably do. And because I can't, because I have to think of it, I don't know if I can. Um, I just want to say that I really like being trans. Mm. I think sometimes the narrative of like, this is very hard for us which is, can be true, right? Like this is a really, really shitty time 
in America politically to be trans. Um, there have been worse. I'm, like, I also feel like there have been slightly better. It's hard, but I really love being who I am. Like, being me is great. Um, I get to I get to wake up. I saw myself in the mirror, and I like that. And I like that's new. And I like that I have this background. I really like that I that I had kids. There are other great ways to have kids, and I'm really glad that I had the kids the way I had my kids, because I like what it is. Um, I like that I have lived this life, and I, I look forward to living a lot more of it. Well, thank you, Billy, for thank you spending this time, being last minute, and dealing with all of the tech issues. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad it worked out. And I'm, I'm so glad that we met and like sat at that one table. Like just, ah, oh, I was happy. Yeah. Yeah. It's really nice. Cause we've been able to, to continue chatting and are in that little group text now, which has been very helpful. And yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No. Yeah. You and you and that other friend are, are just a really wonderful support and joy to me. Well, I will go through my stuff. You know, it's not anonymous. You seem to be very cool with that. Um, I am. I don't plan to say anything incriminating. I don't think I have anything incriminating to say. I was like, hmm. <laughs> I know. I mean, your name is already out there, right? Oh, you yeah. have a stalker. <laughs> I got a stalker. I got a harasser. Yeah. So you, you've already experienced... <laughs> that stuff mm -hmm. oh yeah no i've i've gotten the death threats before and i know it'll happen again at some point